0: This is Writing Lives, Biography and Beyond, a podcast by the Oxford Centre for Life Writing. I'm Catherine Collins. And I'm Kate Kennedy. Join us as we talk to leading biographers and academics about every aspect of life writing. A warm welcome to you all. My name is Kate Kennedy and I'm the Associate Director of the Oxford Centre for Life Writing, I'd like to welcome you to a very special lecture in our Winereeb series. Had we been able to be in person, we would have been in Birmingham as the guests of the Arts of Place network, and we very much hope that next year we will be there. Now the Wine lecture series is very special to us here at the Oxford Centre for Life Writing. It's the highlight of each term and this term we're absolutely delighted and really honored to welcome richard maybe who's led the way for 50 or so years in writing broadcasting and combining memoir and biography with nature and who better than birmingham's alexandra harris to talk to him about his work on gilbert white alexandra is a literary critic cultural historian and a lover of landscapes and writing and a dear and much valued friend of the life writing center So I'm thrilled to welcome them both and we'll sit back and enjoy their conversation. Thank you both, Alexandra and Richard, very much indeed.
1: Oh, thank you, Kate. Um,
2: thank you, Kate.
1: And Richard, what a pleasure to be talking to you today. I mean, you really are the bubbling wellspring of modern nature writing. <laughs> and you've been bringing people closer to the natural world since your first books, Food for Free and the Unofficial Countryside. Delighted readers with their subversive and often delicious outings to the hedgerows in the early 1970s. Um, unofficial, yes, I think that's a, a key word. Um, Richard, maybe tens to find uh, real life beneath officialdom. He's on the side of the weeds that refuse to be tidied. He takes his cues from the playfulness and conviviality of swifts. He gives us all a ticket to join the exuberant cabaret of plants. And this conversation hosted by Ocloo is an opportunity to celebrate Richard maybe as a life writer. He's long been inventing new forms of mixed memoir and natural history, letting ecology and personal feeling work together. He's a remarkable, observer and appreciator of people and especially of the way different people observe and appreciate what they notice, what it means to them. So I want to raise a toast to him as a biographer. His very fine life of Flora Thompson holds fiction and history in careful balance. Um, And his life of Gilbert White, which is going to be our central subject here, must be a classic, because 35 years on from winning the Whitbread Prize for biography, um, it feels utterly contemporary. In short, we have a life writer extraordinaire. Hello, Richard. Your biography of Gilbert White came out in 1986, uh, but you'd clearly been thinking about this quiet curate of Selborne long before that. Can you take us back a bit? Was he an early influence on you, and how did you come to be writing his life?
2: Well, thank you, Alex, for those fantastically kind words. And can I just say I'm utterly delighted to be here under these uh, unusual circumstances. I. Uh, I have to go back to the nineteen seventies uh, for my first encounter with Gilbert White, um, which was a vain attempt to read the Natural History of Selborne, which I failed. I found uh, its profusion of Latin names and its very eccentric structure. It's a it's a it's a book about the life of a whole community in a village done as a series of letters. Um, And I I didn't get past the first uh, 20 pages the first time I tried. Then quite out of the blue, because I'd been doing uh, a fair amount of writing in this area, Penguins invited me to write an introduction to the natural history of Selborne. So I had to read the whole thing and begin to take it a bit more seriously. And the more I went into the book itself, and the more I inquired into White's life, how he came to write it, um, the more fascinated I became by him as much as by the book. Um, and it, it was the curiosity about, as much about how this guy had been misrepresented, I think partly by me as much as anybody else before that, that that drove me to accept a commission to do his biography. Uh, if you go back through... Gosh, there have been more than 200 editions of White since the the first edition in um, 1789. And you read the introductions of those. They're they're a commentary on our changing attitudes towards our perceptions of nature. And the way that White is described um, is very much as a uh, a kind of man of the ditch. um, He's hodge. He's an uneducated man with the gift of words which seemed to have sprung spontaneously from somewhere in his in his mind and the idea that uh, that he might actually be a very skilled professional writer who worked hard at producing the various uh, literary, things that he that he wrote um really isn't there i, I can remember one writer saying that that he, uh, he he approached his subject as a spaniel um bounding through the hedgerows um and it's that kind of patronizing idea that uh, this was a really really a kind of uh, ventriloquism his writing um not the work of a, of an extremely keen, uh, naturalist observer but also a keen literary intelligence and it was an attempt to try and uh, to write that to put that right um that made me embark upon doing the biography trying to find out okay what was this man really like how did he set about this task why did he write this extraordinary book
1: well you've definitely made him more than a, a spaniel um I know people used to have their Gilbert White by heart. And indeed, as you, as you as you say there, after 200 editions, he comes with an enormous history of reading and of being loved. But just in case people now don't have his writing at the top of their minds, I wonder if we might be able to give people at this early stage a bit of a a taste of him. I, I just wonder if you want to perhaps give us a little quote or just, just gesture to a, a few passages that were particularly
2: meaningful for you. Okay, well, there's one that I went through having a look at some of the bits that I, I like myself. Um, and every few years, I find quite different aspects of the book that uh, that excite me and, and, and astonish me. Um, and I looked at the... Uh, the passage, the very short couple of sentences that I used as an epigraph for the biography. And I looked at it today, and I couldn't believe how modern they were. Uh, it, it had never struck me in quite this way before. So it's, it's a lovely piece, and I used it in a different context in the book, but I'll read it to you. The language of birds is very ancient, and like other ancient modes of speech, very elliptical. Little is said, but much is meant and understood. This was 1778. Um, The idea here that birds might actually have a language that was not just uh, sentimental music um, is extraordinary. And also the idea that they had agency, but much is meant and understood. This hasn't really returned to the writing about nature until the last 10 years. This guy was so far ahead of his time in his understanding and the way he actually use really quite extraordinary literary devices to get across.
1: That that really intrigues me, actually, is how you're dealing with someone whose contemporaneity you want to show, but you also need to take us back into into his world, into the 1760s and the 1770s. Were those things ever in tension for you?
2: The context in which Wright was writing, well, very much in, in, in the, uh, the the mode of, of natural theology, that is that the purpose of natural history was to uh, observe and interpret the details of the natural world as if they were simply manifestations of the, the work of God. Um, and the more you saw... Um the more his uh, his great intelligence would be revealed. Now, white, of course, was a Church of England cleric. so in some ways he was ensnared by the whole idea that uh, that nature was a was a kind of book written by the creator. Um, but repeatedly he broke the bounds of that. There is no way in which um white would have supported what uh, some of his uh, contemporaries, or just predecessors like Derham, um, wrote, which was the idea that, that the world worked absolutely perfectly um, and absolutely perfectly in the service of man. Um, so, for instance, um, <laughs> I can remember one of the things in Derham's physico theology mm-hmm. was that there was. Precisely the amount of gold in the world um, for the trade of humans to be able to, to, to be conducted successfully, um, and that was the reason there was that amount. Wow! Um, so, so the the the, the core of um, physico-theology, as it was called, was entirely anthropocentric. Um, the, the the world was uh, built in such a way as to serve human beings, occasionally just delight them slightly frivolously. Um, But basically it was there as an immense, what we've now called service provider. So you you contrast that with White's what I've just read, that little single statement about um, the language of birds. Um, Little is said, but much is meant and understood. And that is understood by other birds, not by us. That's the crucial thing, I think, about what he was saying there. That there was something going on that we had nothing to do with. The birds were talking to each other, not to us.
1: That, I think, um, it begins to show us quite how radical, how subversive White was. I'm, I'm struck by um, your, your saying, I think it's in your introduction to the Penguin edition, that um, there was White writing with this kind of willful parochialism during the French Revolution, and during this time of huge agricultural upheaval um, in Britain, and uh, it's become almost legendary, hasn't it, that he was he was observing a nightjar while the Bastille was being stormed. <laughs> and it's easy to think, well, how irrelevant, you know, how what a failing. And yet, I, I think you're s- so often alert to people's. Uh, quiet radicalism. Was that something that you wanted to bring out in in Gilbert White, who had so often been seen as gentle and quiet and like a spaniel?
2: Yes, I think it was precisely what I wanted to bring out. I mean, don't be under any illusion. White was um, a conservative in most political senses um and he, he abhorred what was happening in the french revolution that, that that you mentioned and yet even there there was something in the man that was um was not prepared to uh allow the the local establishment to have all its own way when there was a plan by the uh the owners of Selborne. I mean, the, the the people who had the uh, the living of the parish, Morgan College, to enclose Selborne Common. Um, Gilbert White hid the deeds so that when the uh, the surveyors were coming round to try and prepare the the plans for the enclosure, uh, they were not available. Hmm. And this this was a little plot he he'd done. But I mean, that that's a, a side issue about his uh, his political conservatism certainly in the sense of his attitude towards nature he was profoundly radical um and sometimes it was that the radicalism of compassion um the very first note that he makes in his nature journals naturalist journals um about things other than what he grew in the garden um is a note about crickets um the crickets that that, uh, that lived in a, an area just outside the uh, where, where white lived, the wakes, um, called the Lith, Lith. Um and these were little uh, uh field crickets which um he became he he loved crickets of all sorts. He loved them in the house, he loved their chirping. Um, but the field crickets he, he wanted to know more about um and they lived in, in quite deep burrows. And he first tried to to fish one out but realised it was going to to damage and hurt the creature. And he was very distressed by this. Um, So he worked out a way of of getting them out of their houses um, using a twisted stem of grass, which he poked down the burrow until the cricket clung onto it. And he very gently withdrew it. So he he could examine it and and write this this wonderful description of the colours of its abdomen and... um, that That is really exceptional uh, for that time. I mean, no other uh, writer on the natural world before that would have had the slightest compunction about killing a few crickets in order to, to examine them more closely. But, but White made that move uh, to say that the, the, the cricket's comfort, um, its individuality, its uniqueness as a creature, meant that he ought to respect its life.
1: I'm very struck by the fact that these biography lectures usually involve biographers working out how they're going to deal with the friends and the neighbours of their subjects. And of course, in your case, the friends and the neighbours of your subject are the crickets and the (laughs) swallows. was there a sense in which you're actually making that those and those natural animal neighbours your cast of characters and and wanting us to know those creatures on the page as it were? I suppose you have to be a bit careful about about that because you need to keep their otherness as 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 well. Can you talk a little bit about? creating this whole parish of beings around uh, Gilbert White, this neighbourly parish that you so vitally um, make live for us on the page.
2: Yeah, I, I think that there is a danger here of, of um, putting 21st century consciousness into White. You know, our, our idea of the, of the community which embraces other beings, um, is probably quite modern, but but White, however deliberately or not, was doing this in Selborne. He was writing um, a series of letters, datelined Selborne, about a parish which consisted of very much more than the human inhabitants. Um, and some of his writing embraces the non-human or the more than human beings of this parish um, in a way which is... is Profoundly uh, gracious um, and 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 welcoming. Um, I think, in my opinion, the most remarkable passages in the Natural History um, are the the four letters he he wrote, which were read on his behalf uh, to the Royal Society um, about swallows and house martins and swifts. You know the great uh, summer visitors that um, that uh, brighten up our parishes in ever-decreasing numbers, alas, these days. White adored these creatures. He saw them as uh, as almost guests of the parish. They adorned his life in the summer, and he was very sad when they went in the winter. Now, I mean, the little side issue here, um, White is very often rebuked for not believing in, uh, in migration, um, because on occasions he sent out People to search the commons under bushes and things like that to find if there were hibernating swallows underneath them. Um, he knew perfectly well that hibernation happened. Um, his brother in Gibraltar had seen it and they communicated uh, about it by letter. So his, his reluctance to accept that all the swallows and house Martins had left DSL Selborne. Um, for the winter was simply because he missed them <laughs> and he was prepared to uh to, to make a little dent in in his scientific objectivity here and just pray that a few might have hung around in the winter to keep him company <laughs> but can i can i read you another piece oh please do uh, because mm-hmm. uh it is a piece about um house martins and um it's a it's as close as white gets to uh, anthropocentrism, um, but it isn't um, because what he's talking about here um, is the possibility of uh, birds being, uh, as it were, parallel citizens. Mm. Um, he's, he's talking about um, how smarties actually make their nests. The bird not only clings with its claws, but partly supports itself, by strongly inclining its tail against the wall, making thus a fulcrum, and thus steady works and plasters the materials into the face of the brick or stone. But then that this work may not, while it's soft and green, pull itself down by its own weight, the provident architect has prudence and forbearance enough not to advance her work too fast, but by building only in the morning and by dedicating the rest of the day to feud and amusement, gives it sufficient time to dry and harden. About a half an inch seems to be sufficient layer for a day. Thus, careful workmen, when they build mud walls, informed at first, perhaps by the sickle bird, raise but a moderate layer at a time, and then desist, lest the work should become top-heavy and so be ruined by its own weight. It's a lovely passage to me. <laughs> uh, and I, li- I, I like the um, the kind of um, the pitfall he sets for the reader here when he, he uses the phrase provident architect. And on almost any other contemporary writer that would have referred to God, um, investing the bird with prudence and forbearance. But no, he means the house Martin itself, um, having this wonderful time building in the morning and crashing out for fun in the afternoon.
1: Terrific. And it's just it's so sensible of the Martins, isn't it? I mean, that's just is how yes. you make a model yes. yes. yeah,
2: Um,
1: I love that you <clears throat> you always draw attention to when he's uh watching what the birds are not doing, when they're not working, when they're having time off. I think that's, that's right. That's yeah. Great. Um it's a it's a terrific example though, um uh of where you're watching for Gilbert White's own feelings as he's looking outward at, at nature. And this seems to me an absolute crunch point of, of, of writing any life of Gilbert White. I mean, prodigious diary keepers like White um, are usually gifts for biographers because, you know, they're telling you every day's activities. But in White's case, of course, it's all recording what the swallows are doing or what the weather's doing. He's not writing about himself directly at all. And so you're i think having to somehow watch his inner life as it's refracted in his observation of the outer world mm. can can you give us a few more examples of 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 where you were able to do that or perhaps you just felt you couldn't get closer to him um as close to him as you would like perhaps.
2: yeah i i think that's right i mean White, uh, in the natural history of Solborn, at least, um, never directly um, opens up about his feelings, um, and it is all uh, rather elliptical. And I suppose they are op- open to uh, overinterpretation by by the biographer. Um, yet, r- repeatedly, he lets slip all kinds of things about his own state of mind. Um, it's very evident that he's he's quite lonely a lot of the time. Uh, and the creatures he's writing about are companions. Mm. What, what I'd like to, re- to read now um, is, is a, a thing which was not in the Natural History of Selborne. It's just actually uh, a note he put um, in the journal. And it's right. about the extraordinary time that Blanchard's hot-air balloon crossed Selborne. Um, and I, I think this is the most extraordinary bit of writing that White did, um, because he frames the passage of the balloon, this great uh, machine of the scientific future against the ancient features of the village. Um, and i just read a sentence I do here. It was hanging amidst the regions of the upper air between the weathercock of the tower and the top of the maple. At first coming towards it, it did not seem to make any way, but we soon discovered that its velocity was very considerable. For in a few moments, it was over the maple and then over the fox on my great parlor chimney and in 10 minutes behind my great walnut tree. And I I, I love this this, uh, mapping of the, the progress in this way. But then White goes on to to contemplate the significance of this great journey. I was wonderfully struck at first with the phenomenon, and like Milton's belated peasant, felt my heart rebound with fear and joy at the same time. After a while, I surveyed the machine with more composure, without that awe and concern for two of my fellow creatures, lost in appearance in the boundless depths of the atmosphere for we supposed then that two were embarked on this astonishing voyage. At last, seeing with what steady composure they moved, I began to consider them as secure as a group of storks or cranes intent on the business of emigration." Much earlier, um, White had actually displayed great concern about Banks's um, journeys, which were happening in, in this time and I, I read this as the confessions of someone who really barely traveled at all. White was afflicted by coach sickness um, and by a curious love-hate relationship with Selborne, which meant that he uh, he occasionally went down to Sussex, um, but in his later years, that was about all. And the the energy of writing these letters to two fellow naturalists was partly a consolation for the fact that he wasn't out there travelling like so many of his fellow naturalists.
1: Mm. I, I think you you say somewhere that the fact that he lived in Selborne, that that was his parish, is in a sense the only important fact in his biography. Very, very striking point to, to make. I wonder, um, I wonder which aspects of of Selborne, of of that place itself, you think are most important in in his biography. How how did it shape him?
2: When I was doing the biography, um, going back to some of the things you were saying earlier about uh, you know getting to know the um, the rest of the cast, as it were, uh, the, the the other members of the parish. Um, by far, the most important aspect of the research I did for the book, was actually going out into the Selborne countryside and following the, the routes that White took himself, um, which was very productive because uh, Selborne has has really barely changed in, in more than two centuries, and I, I was able to find quite specific colonies of plants um, in the precise addresses where White had, had done them, had seen them. Um, And one began to get a sense of the the complexity of the parish and the the kind of psychological effect that this had on White. Um, He once called it a very abrupt place. Um, And that, I think, catches it perfectly, that you are at one moment um, in a beach hangar and the next moment sliding down a bank towards a stream. And I, I think that of all... The places in in the the universe of Selborne um, that were, were most had most impact on White's on White's writing, but also on on the psych- psychology of how he lived were the hollow lanes. Selborne was a very isolated village. Um, it had one road in and out, and most of the roads in the area were were little lanes that were. In John Barrell's uh, analysis of, of John Clare's world, were, um, were were circular. They went round um, the village rather than out of it. And many of these, given the complex geology of Selborne, um, lo- a lot of it on, on on very kind of friable sandstone, um, were were hollow lanes which uh, went down sometimes 18 feet below the surface. And these very often became blocked, and white quite loved it when it was blocked. <laughs> they, they, they became very very picturesque and uh, icicles hung from the top and he, he wrote some uh, some jokey pieces about how this used to frighten his lady visitors. Um, but I think I think he he found a huge kind of um, self-justification in the lanes, the hollow lanes. They were profound expressions of the way that time and nature, natural processes, um, combined to produce uh, a landscape. Um, he said they, they'd been worn down by the centuries of water and human traffic. Um, but they also kept him in the village and they kept visitors out. Um, people who came to see Gilbert were were very often uh, unable to do so because there was literally no way into the village. And I think this both fostered loneliness in Gilbert, but also a determination to uh, get over it. Um, And the sense in which the the, the lanes become, uh, or rather the letters Become an alternative conduit uh, to the lanes, I and mean, is I think really quite apparent. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other great part of the landscape that was important to Gilbert was, was the hangar, of course, the great beach clad hill that rose above the uh, the wakes where he lived, um, which cut the daylight um, in the village down by about three hours uh, from if you were on the top of the hill. And the, the hangar. Created a kind of backdrop. Lots of the the very best bits of his journal writing and of uh, letters in the in the natural history are are shown against the backdrop of the hangar. Um, a kind of slow changing panorama against which darting events happened. Uh, Martins gathered to collect insects off the leaves, uh, for instance, he he was very uh, struck by at one point. So I I think the uh, the actual topography of the village um, not only had Obvious, an obvious influence on the creatures that Wright was able to write about, but had a, 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 quite an influence on his psychology as well. Thank
1: you for that immensely vivid. Uh, word portrait of of the parish um, and it makes me see you too as as one of those footsteps biographers in in the word made famous by by richard holmes that actually by mm. treading the um by treading the place That's you right. can yeah, inhabit
2: well. it I, I i love that but um unlike dear richard um who always seemed to have the the subject he was writing about materializing in front of him um this never happened to me. I, I was always looking at footprints rather than the person who was making them. And I think it was only on one occasion when I actually found a, an exceptionally rare plant, green hellebore, um, in a hollow lane exactly where White had described it, that suddenly he was there. Um, reputedly five foot two tall and as thin as a willow and he was crouching in the lane in front of me.
1: <laughs> oh, living on in the plant. So, that makes reminds me of um, Virginia Woolf's overriding feeling when she was reading the natural history of Selborne, was of not being able to get close to to White. Um, She she tries to look at him through her field field glasses as if he were some kind of rare bird. Um, (laughs) And who is he? Well, she says, we are at a loss. And and she adds that there is no portrait. Um, And and in a sense, what a challenge for you then to paint the the portrait, to to make sure that we are no longer at a loss. but I just wanted to bring Virginia Woolf in, really, Richard, because, of course, <laughs> she belongs in every conversation. Um, but I, I I wanted also just to ask you about the the letters. Um, we've talked a lot about this sort of solitary life, but I do think that you have such a feel for his social life, too. Um, particularly perhaps with Mul- with his friend uh, John Molso and these other, you know, voluble Oxford yeah friends um and and clearly there's a massive correspondence that's much less well known than the natural history itself um and you know were you were you working in archives i'm not quite sure where all these letters are were they just emerging were you bringing them together for the first time
2: um uh, yes there are archives scattered all over the place um the uh the original letters for the Um, natural history are in London. Um, The original naturalist journals are in America, needless to say, at the Houghton Library. But there are all kinds of wonderful um, scraps in Magdalen College archives and in the Hampshire Record Office. Some of the archives have bills from the time he was at Oxford. Um, And it's very plain that he he was quite a man about town there. Um, He frequented coffee houses with some of the the poets of the time. Um, he was very fond of music, which uh, was a taste he continued throughout his life. Um, he was a gourmet. He drunk the newly fashionable coffee. Um, and it, it's clear from when you follow this Gilbert White, uh, the urban sophisticate, that was the man who actually wanted to leave Selborne. When White graduated um, from Oxford, as I say, very much as a a urban sophisticate. Um, He he, he wanted to stay in Oxford. He wanted to become a fellow. He loved the academic life and the the company and the society of uh, of a university very much. And he made several attempts to to acquire a post as as a permanent fellow at Oriel College um and these were eventually dashed because of some ill substantiated scandal about um one of his relations uh, which the, 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 the college uh, other fellows assumed meant gilbert had a um had had a fortune and therefore was drawing his fellowship uh, improperly so he was turned down for the, eventually for the post he was looking for um, and retreated to Selborne. Um, and for the next uh, sort of 30 years, really, he, he barely settled. Um, he was getting, uh, trying really rather half-heartedly to get livings in various parishes about the place. At this time, his his very great friend, John Mulso was repeatedly urging him to, to settle down repeatedly urging him to leave Selborne in order that he could establish a living somewhere and get married. Um, and Gilbert always fussed and refused and said he really wasn't up to such adult activities. Um, the great thing that is missing from Gilbert White records um, are the letters that he wrote to his friend John Mulso. For lifelong correspondence, Mulso's letters back are wonderfully funny, uh, at times actually quite hysterical. And they, they give a glimpse of what Gilbert's letters to him must have been like. Um, something oh,
1: amazing. So we've got a whole gap that you're, yeah, you're yeah. imagining your way into. Yeah. Yes, lovely.
2: If, if, if we had that collection of, of, of letters, I don't know why we don't, because Sorry, I'm advancing on too many fronts simultaneously here, but one of the uh, one of the fascinating things about the construction of this book, The Natural History of Solborn, which, as I said earlier, is a collection of letters uh, written to two eminent naturalists, is that White was keeping copies of the letters from the very outset. Now, Alexander, you will probably know better than me whether this was a common habit amongst letter writers in the 18th century, before carbon paper even, before typewriters, uh, to keep copies of their their correspondence. Do you know?
1: Well, I think only for the most formal and perhaps legally binding sorts of letters. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my associations with 18th century letter writing are very much, um, you know, in great dashing flight getting these things down before the post, before giving them to the, the, yeah. the messenger. Um, so I think it is unusual.
2: But but uh, what, what it says is that White, despite the fact that he denied it for 20 years, um, was almost certainly planning Um, The Natural History of Selborne from a very early age, um, because, uh, you know, he was keeping and storing these letters. And towards the end, when the book was openly under construction, Um, He began creating false letters so that where where there was a piece uh, of text that he wanted to to include, um, which he hadn't covered in his correspondence, he wrote fake letters um, with fake dates on them and inserted them in the text. So uh, the whole thing becomes almost postmodern in its its deviousness. Um, (laughs) But going back to Mulso, forgive me. Um, having this discussion in such a spider's web way. But but what's fascinating about his his uh, correspondence with Maltzow is he didn't keep any copies. If we had those letters, um, I think it would open up to us a picture of White as a, a much more accessible human being, full of flaws and um, procrastination, um, but also... I, I, I guess a really quite wicked sense of humor to try and construct um the puns that he and mulso were swapping with each other sometimes quite quite baldy ones which again is uh, uh, something you, you might not expect in a um, an 18th century vicar.
1: <laughs> and sometimes the gaps in our knowledge can be almost as fertile as if they were full of letters. Yeah, you can almost I, hear the creative writer's system going I, on their experimental versions of that. I kind know, of I, I'd,
2: I'd often thought it would be a wonderful challenge uh, to write the uh, write the, the letters that Gilbert White sent to Mulso to try and cons- sort of back construct them from Malso's answers.
1: Well, you uh, know who would be best at doing that, Richard. Um, <laughs> On which note, I wondered if, just as we come to the end, really, of, of, of this this wonderful conversation, um, we might we might reflect back on on you. I mean, we've we've learned, I think, a lot about you through talking about your work on on white. Um, it, in 2019 you um you published Turning the Boat for Home which is um a collection of essays which in- includes a, a long piece on on Gilbert White again I mean he sort of goes through your your life with you as it as it were um and this collection of essays is at the same time I think a kind of self-portrait um the portrait of a, of a working life and it's done through your responses to to other people, so it's not you sitting looking at yourself. It's it's told in terms of friendships and appreciations of other writers and artists and and, and naturalists. Um, so I I wondered how how you evolved the shape of that book and whether you came to understand the the shape of your life's work any differently as you put that book together.
2: Well, I I, I think. I think the book was shaped by taking the path of least resistance. I I, I think I decided quite early on that um, there's no way I wanted to write a proper autobiography. Um, I didn't think my life outside my working life was remotely interesting enough. Uh, There was a lot of it that I just would be bored talking about and suspect that it would bore other people. I felt that that to try and do an autobiography, which was entirely about work, would be very um, bizarre. And so I thought that that to have, uh, to choose uh, passages of partly autobiographical writing, um, which collected together, um, trace something of both uh, my intellectual development, And as I suppose, my literary development, because um, there were two strands here: Uh, one, the uh, the movement from sort of country writing that is represented by Food for Free, Um, and then to the other extreme, the the much more um, how would I put it, uh, nature centred writing of books like Weeds and the Cabaret of Plants. Um, the, 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 those are um, uh, uh, movements in in content and genre, really. But I also th- was quite interested in the way that my, my, my writing style had changed over that time. I suppose in, in absolute parallel in, in that um, uh, at the beginning, I was probably more interested in the Uh, the way in which uh, the wild and human worlds fitted together, uh, the cultural inflections uh, that we have given to nature. Um, And then now perhaps I'm more interested in in the wild per se and the the trajectories of uh, of wild beings. Told in in terms of their own agendas, as, as as subjects of their own life stories, rather than as objects in our stories. So I I, I hope that the um that turning the boat for home and those those rather uh, not arbitrarily selected but but very different pieces I mean trace a little bit of both those uh, uh, trajectories uh, of of the content um, and of, um, I suppose, my way of looking at the world.
1: Uh, I think extremely su- successfully. Um, uh, we have the intimacy of of your finding the the weed that pops up at your back door, the bird that comes into your library, but but also that sense of a wide and and social life, part of a political world and uh, and full of friendships. And and that seems to answer so beautifully back to the kind of life that, that Alex. Went. We haven't. So- Go
2: on. I haven't really, sorry to interrupt, I haven't really at any point here, and it's my fault, sort of say why I think The Natural History of Selborne is an important book.
1: Let's do it. And
2: I think think that needs to be said, because um, it is written off by, by some people as, as uh, just being a, a work of, uh, of good scientific observation. The real radicalism in in it, uh, you asked me about that earlier, and and I I gave one example of the crickets, um, is that uh, White does respect the creatures and beings that he's writing about um, as agencies. um, And that that was something new. And it involved um, a precision both in the observation, but also in the use of language. And White's prose um, has a, a, a very pure poetic slant to it. I thought I might might, might, might just, a, it's it's not a, a journal entry for today, but it's a, a journal entry for the kind of weather we, we've had in the last few days. Um, and I think it shows It's from the journals, not the natural history of Selborne. And it shows White's um, very brilliant ability um, to bring quite often two contrasting images um, into sharp contrast. Um, And it's a device he used repeatedly. Um, And this is a a journal entry for um, March the 4th, 1765. A smart frost and very strong sunshine all day. The bees work very briskly on the crocuses amidst the banks of snow. And it's almost like a haiku. It catches the feel of a particular day in a single sentence. I think White's ability to reflect the precision of his own observations in a very precise language, using uh, devices like uh, those contrasting Um, Images. Um, If you combine that with um, the way in which he constructed a book using letters um, from a parish about a parish, which was a very modernist idea at the time being used in in fiction by Richardson, for instance, um, marks him down as as a real literary innovator as well as a scientific one.
1: Terrific, and and sometimes we we need the great interpreters just to nudge us towards seeing those things. I mean, now you say it, I can, I can suspect that if those few lines had been written in Paris in 1911, we'd be celebrating them as as Imagist poetry. Um, and in and indeed, your your idea of this as a kind of postmodern book shows us just how hybrid it, it is. Um, Richard, I'm going to. Uh, thank you for this just extraordinarily generous and eloquent and um uh evocative conversation uh, if there were an audience in the room they would be waving and applauding their their <laughs> maybe books um thank you for giving us gilbert white's life and also so many thoughts about your own life and writing too thank you
2: well, thank you, Alex. It's it's been great fun, and um, if if the uh, if my um, my answers have gone round in uh, in very spiralling circles, if that's not a nonsense, um, I can only say that's a, that's the way that writing goes too.
1: Thank you for joining us on Writing Lives:
0: Biography and Beyond, a podcast by the Oxford Centre for Life Writing. Follow us on Twitter at OxLifeWriting to hear more about what we do. And if you'd like to be more involved, access exclusive events and attend our virtual book club, then join our Friends Scheme. We also offer writing groups and mentoring to those working on their own life writing projects. You can find all the details on our website if you Google O-C-L-W.